Dotnet Rocks episode 845, with guests Glenn Block, Henrik Nielsen, and Daryl Miller. Recorded live Thursday, January 31st, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. A uh, historic show coming right up here after a historic blizzard on the uh, East Coast. Was it really that big? Um, the worst one we had that I remember was the blizzard of 1978. We got four feet of snow. This time we got two and a half. Okay. So this so, is the second... But still a... Yeah, second biggest snowstorm that I've experienced here in my life. That's a lot of snow. How are you doing up there? Uh, well, it just rains here, you know. We haven't had snow in a yeah. while. So I guess it does snow, and then it just goes away. It's just a... Yeah, no, our regular cycle is snow comes in in the morning, rain in the afternoon, and then if it freezes overnight, we're all screwed. So do you guys have any kind of snowplow infrastructure there? Yep. Just haven't... Sure. Yeah. You have to, right? Yeah, sand and salt and plows. But, you know, not the, they don't do snow removal like you guys do snow removal, where you're literally picking it up in dump trucks and hauling it away. Actually, last that. night, Kelly and I were playing darts at Hannafin's, and right on State Street, dump truck after dump truck after dump truck of snow just kept going up the street. And that's just one street. Wow. It was crazy. All right, better know a framework. All right, what do you got? Well, you know what an expando object is, right? This is a, sure. a dynamic object, part of the DLR. Well, in, it, it can sort of be a problem doing serialization with a dynamic object. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash expando, there's a project uh, for custom serialization for expando objects in ASP.NET Web API. So this guy has posted cool. some code and some sample code and how to use it to do a serialization, deserialization of uh, dynamic objects, expando objects. Nice. Know it, learn it, love it. Yeah, good. There you go. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 841, and that's the one we did with Jamie Wright, talking about what Rails folks can teach .NET folks and vice versa, you know, the different platforms. And uh, this comment comes from Christopher Jarl, who says, Dear Beards. Beards? <laughs> I guess we both have beards, but yeah. At least he didn't say neck beards. That's something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks for another great episode. In my profession, I work with ASP.NET MVC, and in my spare time, I fiddle with all kinds of other frameworks like Rails, Grails, Django, and whatnot. I agree with a lot of what was said on the show, but at the same time, I feel Jamie somewhat failed to get one of the main points across, so let me give it a try. When it comes to end results, I don't know if there's anything that can be done in framework A that cannot be done in framework B, or vice versa. The point is not what end results can or cannot be achieved, but how painful it is to reach that result. Right. Sure, you can do routing, pipeline hooks, and all that other stuff in ASP.NET MVC, but the pain inflicted is greater than if you try and do the same thing in Rails. On the flip side, there are features that are easy and painless in ASP.NET MVC that causes pain when tried to be done in Rails. And admittedly, the pain is what we want to avoid. 
Otherwise, we would all still be coding in C using Emacs. Yeah, that's right. Blah. Right? Or still doing, you know, C programming against the web. That was good. Oh, yeah. You could do do that. The bottom line is this. ASP.NET MVC and Rails are both painkillers, but they soothe different kinds of pains. And it's up to you to analyze what kind of pain you're in and then choose your painkiller. Right. Well said, Christopher. I totally agree. You know, when you switch over to a different platform or different development environment, you lose some things to gain some things. Solve one set of problems over here, you get a different set of problems over there. Right. No simple answers there. If there was one right way, we'd all be doing it. (laughs) If it was easy, you could get it at (laughs) 7-Eleven. That's it. And so thanks very much for your comment. And .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 400 hardcore developer training courses, authored by industry experts, releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month, offering a free 10-day trial, and a wide range of developer training courses, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including several courses on .NET internals and advanced debugging techniques, web API, spa, all of that stuff. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us introduce our esteemed guest. This is going to be a smackdown of the highest order today. We have uh, three uh, guests today. Henrik Nielsen is a Danish engineer and computer scientist, best known for his pioneering work on the World Wide Web. Yeah, that guy. And subsequent work on computer network protocols. Daryl Miller has spent 20 years writing line of business apps for manufacturing companies. The last five of those has been spent attempting to apply the principles of REST to building these systems. He's a Microsoft integration MVP and a member of the Microsoft Web API Advisory Board. And Glenn Block is a PM on the Azure team, providing support for hosting of Node.js apps in the cloud on Windows Azure. He has experience both inside and outside Microsoft developing software solutions for ISVs and the enterprise. He also has been active in involving folks from the community in the development of software at Microsoft. This has included shipping products under open source licenses, as well as assisting other teams looking to do so. Glenn is also very subdued. (laughs) Sure he is. (laughs) Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thank you. I'm uh I I feel a little hesitant to open it up because I'm in the presence of greatness here. Heinrich, uh this is such an honor to have you on our stupid little show. Thank you. <laughs> this sounds great. Um well, you know, we should just have people uh we should just let you introduce yourself a little bit first. I mean, when I say you were you pioneered work on the World Wide Web, we're talking about way back Tim Berners-Lee and you. Tell us about that experience. Yes, well, I was um, not sort of to make it a, a long story, but I was uh, essentially lucky. I was a young student, um, and I ended up at I was looking for places to do my masters, and uh, somebody told me at my university that at CERN there were lots of stuff, interesting stuff going on, and so I went down to CERN, and um, uh, that was way back in '93, um, and I dropped in and. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee was sitting there uh, doing, uh, starting on the web thing. There were like five people, three students, and two. Um, uh, there were Tim Berners-Lee and one other guy who sort of were taking 
working on the web essentially was completely unknown to anybody else at CERN because they do they smash particles as you know Um, and so what happened was that essentially I started um, in I came back in early 94 and uh, started working on on something called libwww which was the uh, common shared implementation of uh, HTTP as it looked like then FTP go for ways all these other protocols that uh the web tried to encapsulate. And um, in the very early spring of, of 94, I, I came together with uh, Roy Fielding, who was a, at that time a, a grad student at UC Irvine. And so we started uh, working on HTTP 1.0 together. Um, and since then, it's just been web all the way. Nate, I, you know, you mentioned Gopher and stuff, and it, it, a lot of people tend to think that the web just appeared out of nowhere, that, you know, just sort of, we got this idea for hypertext and blah, blah, blah. But that wasn't the case. I mean, there were a lot of first attempts at that kind of linked uh, list. And Gopher, as you mentioned, was one of them. Archie. And, yeah. And, and and also hypertext was sort of really a big deal at that point, you know, with help files. I remember, especially on the Windows side, help files in, with hypertext jumping was like a big thing. And uh, these two things just sort of naturally found each other. Don't yes, you think? Yes, there was. Yeah, absolutely. There were there were two things where I think um, really sh- showed the brilliance of what I consider the brilliance of, of Tim Berners-Lee. He had a um, a great insight saying that the information space has to be global. That is, that you cannot sort of have a most of the the hypertext systems were kind of their own universes. Um, this was the 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 web was sort of the very uh, incorporated everything that you can possibly come up with with uh, your eyes for at that point in time and saying, well, they're all part of the web in some way, shape, or form. Whereas most other systems saying, well, you have to be, in order to be part of our system, you sort of have to be special, you have to look in a certain way. And so this very open model of the web was very early on and that, that enabled it to encapsulate many of the other systems. But you're absolutely right. There were lots of competing systems at, at the time and the other aspect also was um, this notion that uh, uh, what he broke with that hypertext at the time was seen always, always, always as two-way links. That is that if you have a link to me, I also have a link to you to avoid the broken link point problem. And what he said is that, well, that doesn't scale. Uh, if you have a large system, then um, a website like CNN is not going to care about me linking to them because they want to maintain the integrity of their own site, not of everybody else's site. And this idea that you could break links, the idea that you could have a global uh, information space to play in, was really something that was very controversial at the time and nobody thought was neither pure, was was uh, sort of necessary. And so there were, it was not clear at all the web was going to take off. Um, in, hind- in hindsight, it's obviously easy to see, and, and there are lots of reasons for doing it. But at the time, it was not clear at all. And so did you think it was going to be big? I mean, I remember seeing those very early web pages, and, and I was just not that impressed. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't look like much, you know. The design aspect had not come to the web yet. I remember Cello was my first browser, and that was so way back. I think that was 94, actually. Yes, I um, 
I guess I, I grew into it uh, very quickly, but when I started working on it and saw the potential and saw how, uh, especially in, in, in the spring of 94, where the first web conference was held at uh, CERN uh, in Geneva, um, and you had basically had 300 people, which were pretty much everybody who knew about the web around the world, coming together. <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty clear that the this was this had huge opportunity and big big potential for uh, not to sort of sound grandiose, but to change how we 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 think about um, how we go around our lives. Well, I think Henrik, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and ask a question now. I'm gonna play interviewer for a second. So, what was the feeling at the time, though? What were like the you know like. There was the feeling, of course, internally at CERN and how they, how you guys felt about the web. But what was the kind of common feeling outside? What were people saying? Were they were they on board with it? Were they skeptical of it? You mean at CERN? Outside of CERN. Outside people of CERN. People were looking at the work you guys were doing, and you were kind of like, "Hey, we're onto this big thing. We think this is going to be huge." Well, was, I think you. What was the sentiment at the time outside of CERN? Well, it depends a lot on on where you went. As I said, there were many of these other systems um, that looked at the web and they said, "Well, this is too fluffy. It's not precise enough. Uh, it's you don't know this idea that you sort of the protocol. For example, if you take the, the uh, if you take say a, a, a HTTP, the protocol is kind of the client talks about what it would like, and the server sort of looks at saying, "Well, you sort of negotiate with very." Um, unpredictable exactly what you get back. Uh, HTML at the time uh, was very loose. Essentially, the whole point was that any document, any ASCII document, and most of the documents at that time were, were ASCII documents, um, were quote-unquote valid HTML documents. You didn't need to have the, the, the HTML tag around it. You need, didn't need to have the body of the head uh, or the head tag around it. It was all valid HTML. So when people looked at it and saying, well, this is um, way too fluffy, but it had this, this inner ability to encapsulate other people's uh, or other designs. So you could, you could encapsulate, um, and we know this today, sort of FTP and Telnet and, and email and all the other kind of models that have been very popular in large systems are now encapsulated in one way or the other and exposed through HTTP, often to the point where they have sort of overtaken uh, the original model. For example, FTP was, was by far the most popular way of exchanging uh, bytes and, and documents. Now it's practically uh, impossible to use. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. But uh, it was back in 95, I believe, where the web very, was went on, went on a complete exponential uh, explosion and took over FTP completely yep. uh, as the way for exchanging documents. Um, but I still, many years later, run into people saying, well, if you want to exchange big documents, you have to use FTP. But small documents is HTTP, which is kind of bizarre because it looks pretty much the same to me. I mean, I think you, you have anybody, once you see a demo of, okay, I'm looking at this page on one computer in Switzerland, and then I click here, and all of a sudden I'm at a computer in California. And, you know, once people got that, I think it's pretty obvious. But until there was content out there that people could actually use, it didn't really sink in is what I'm thinking. Yes, and that's true. But the, it had this amazing – you're exactly right – 
the value of the web goes up with the content on it. Um, and the, at that time, for example, the first web conference and even the second and the third web conferences was primarily about people saying, uh, we have now exposed our documents through HTTP and, and we put up a web server and we're super happy. And everybody said, wow, there was sort of, uh, uh, I remember Tim actually in the beginning maintained a little list of all the, the web servers around in the world where, because they were, they, were, they were not any more than what you could already have. But the ease by which you could set up one of those servers and, and basically just stick it over a, a file system and then you could exchange documents that way and, and have the browser was a lot of value right there. Um, and it became, as, as more people did it, you got uh, uh, more value uh, in the network and uh, off the web itself, and then it just took off. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, offering RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX. Are you fighting with a SharePoint development assignment? Are you just fighting with SharePoint? You want to stop wasting your time mucking around and get to the real problem? Check out Telerik's RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX. This suite offers more than 70 feature-complete controls that help you build custom web parts, as well as four ready-to-use web parts, which allow you to replace the default SharePoint editor, list view, or calendar in order to enhance the user experience across all browsers and devices. It's awesome. Check it out at Telerik.com SharePoint. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So I guess we should probably talk about Web API here sometime. <laughs> <laughs> the web is much more interesting. It really is. I mean, I'm just fascinated listening to these stories. I could go on forever. But um, apparently, we have some differences of opinions about uh, of the usage and value of Web API. Let's uh, let's just start with your positions, Henrik. I guess you have the floor. Okay. Well. To me, Web API started out as a as a um, way for basically saying, well, um, there's a lot of opportunity for building rich applications that sit on top of HTTP. And the way most web servers like ASP.NET, for example, has been screwed together has been mostly around serving HTML and, and, and deal with form data as input. But if you want to start dealing with, with REST patterns using more of the things that HTTP gives you, you need to have rich, sort of rich access to what HTTP provides and, and give you a, a, a rich environment for doing that. Um, now, ASP.NET Web API was by no means the first. Um, there were lots of other uh, people who have been driving this for years and say, well, we need to push web into new areas. And that's always very exciting to me. And so I think where uh we had some we had some advantage of of stepping on what people already have been 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 having experience with so far and build a model that um in some cases succeeded in other cases we need to improve it but hey it's a v1 and so we're moving on from there and and uh, and now because it's 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 all open source we can say well if you really don't like it then send us a pull request then and that's uh, always a, a good starting point for, for discussion. Uh, so it's about enabling web applications uh, to, to make them 
reach a broader set of, of areas where they make a lot of sense to, to apply. Okay. So I can give a slightly different angle, not, not, not that disagrees with what Henrik said, but when I, when I joined the team, um, Web API didn't exist yet, but we had WCF HTTP, and we had historically in WCF, we had provided some ability for people to use HTTP, but we had a lot of feedback that it wasn't offering the experience that people really wanted, that, you know, that WCF was very geared towards SOAP, and that even when you use WCF over HTTP, it was very kind of SOAP slash RPC oriented. And there's a lot of religious debates, like if you, if you go into the REST community around, you know, this idea of should APIs be RPC, which remote procedure call, where I'm basically just taking a method in my code and exposing it so that somebody can call it over HTTP, or should it really embrace what the web is about, which is not about RPC. The web is just about exchanging these messages uh, in different formats, and it's not about objects. It's, as Mike Amundsen always says, uh, Mike Amundsen is somebody who I, I think you, I don't know if you guys have had him on oh, your yeah. show, but he's been, yeah, Mike Long says ago, he talks actually. about programming the web. So anyway, for me, when I joined the effort, I saw that, you know, there were lots of complaints. There were frameworks like OpenRasta um, that were showing a different way to use HTTP than what we were allowing. Um, and w one of the things that I did when I joined the team is I, you know, when I first joined the team, this concept of REST, which is constantly taken out of context, for me, was really just not SOAP. It was just a way to pass things over HTTP, but I didn't really understand what it was about. Um, and... Sebastian Lambla, who's the author of Open Rasta, pointed me at the REST Discuss list and a few resources on REST, and I started reading up and Roy Fielding's dissertation, and suddenly it was becoming apparent to me that REST is way more than I ever thought it was. Um, and then I saw that once you wanted to try to build a RESTful system, that was where we really fell down. Concepts like hypermedia, which is this idea of linking, and the idea of having many different media types ways of representing data, where it doesn't have to just be JSON, it doesn't have to just be XML, it could be SVG, it could be Atom, it could be a range of different formats, um, that WCF was just overly constraining on a lot of these things. And so I started to really push, and Henrik was extremely supportive on, and Henrik had been pushing in this direction for a long time, on, hey, you know, we need to just, you know, drop this kind of constraints that WCF is giving us and come up with a better model that is more relevant to the types of systems that people are building. And I would say that the explosion also of mobile devices was making this more pertinent because a lot of mobile devices don't have a mobile stack. Uh, don't have a, sorry, they, they obviously have a mobile stack. They don't have a SOAP stack. Um, and SOAP is just very heavy for a lot of these devices to process. Yep. So, um, so really, I came from the angle of, you know, just learning about the things that Henrik had invented and how can we, you know, take our stacks that are not working well for, for building these kind of open systems and build something that can actually leverage uh, the, the, the existing patterns and infrastructure to enable people to build richer services on .NET. Okay, Daryl, your turn. I think... One of the interesting things is when people evaluate Web API, they kind of look at it as an all or nothing. Well, I'm choosing Web API. But Web API 
it's very layered, and you can use parts of it or all of it. If you go right down to the lowest level, you've got this notion of the HP request message, response message, this notion of, of an abstraction around the content, the payload, and you, those are now actually duplicated on the client too. And those are very valuable concepts because they abstract. They just provide a really nice HTTP-compliant way of doing things. So if you really want to do HTTP, those are great. And layered on top of that, you've got the HTTP server and you've got routing. You've got IHTTP controller, which is the most minimal thing that you can use for dispatching within Web API and filters and formatters. But then on top of that, you've got model binding and stuff. You don't have to use all of that. I mean, I've actually taken our existing product that I built uh, services on top of HTTP Listener, and I was able to just migrate it over to Web API. Um, but I don't actually use down at the detailed um, routing and API controllers. I only use part of the, the system. And I think that's one of the real beauties of Web API is that lots of the pieces are replaceable. It's really, it was built right from day one when the advisors list, you know, Glenn got a lot of great people together on the advisors list from across different industries, not just in the .NET world. And the common consensus is don't build us an opinionated framework. Build us something that does HTTP the way it's written in the spec. Well, build, we'll build, build something build. opinionated about HTTP. Don't build yeah. something opinionated about REST. Because there are so many opinions about REST. And I think a lot of people come into the web API space and want it to work out of the box, and they want it to work out of the box the way they want it to work out of the box. And it works out of the box one way, but not necessarily the way everybody wants it to do. But it's very easy to add your own pieces. There's so much community effort around it now, adding new pieces. And there was, I've been listening to some of the, the, uh, the .NET Rocks uh, podcasts where people have been talking. Uh, Demis was talking and comparing Service Stack with Web API. And Demis' solution, Service Stack, it's great when your objective is to send messages over the wire. And that's the architecture that you want to build on top of. And he's done, I, I think he's right in saying he's built a better WCF. And one of WCF's goals was kind of to abstract away that transport layer. But Web API has a very different goal. It's about using HTTP as a first-class application component, and there's so much you can do with it. Web API takes a very general approach where Demis's service stack is, I'm just going to do messaging over HTTP faster than anybody, and WCF does messaging over anything. Yeah, yeah. And the other, the other great show that you did was with, with Harry um, and uh, oh, Hadi Harari. And oh, where yeah. he was he was talking about this kind of funny situation between MVC and API. And there is there is a lot of overlap. But I mean I think that's more just a case of web API is a fresh start that isn't dependent on the whole ASP.NET runtime. Yeah. And yeah, some people are gonna continue using MVC for a while, some people are gonna continue are going to start afresh with web API. But uh, I, I think there's a lot of potential to do a lot of things in the well, and, and, with Web API. And that raises an important point of where we got feedback, uh, and this is something where the web stack is moving in general, is a lot of people felt that, you know, the one thing that they actually liked about WCF, they didn't like about using MVC for Web APIs, was the fact that you didn't have to have the dependency on IIS. 
Um, so when we started off Web API, one of the things we were pushing very early was this idea of self-host which means you don't have to have IIS as your web server. You can just simply deploy an executable, which opens up an HTTP listener. Because, look, it's just a port that it has to listen on, and then everything else just works. Um, of course, there's other challenges like security and other kinds of things. Um, but one of the things that we were able to retain as WCF Web API went through all of its incarnations and ended up in Web API, uh, which I'm really happy about, is we still offer customers that self-host Capability. So with Web API, even though it is a proper part of ASP.NET, so to speak, um, you don't have to pull in ASP.NET or IAS dependencies. And going down that road and seeing how important that was to support that self-host and dealing with the challenges of existing infrastructure in MVC that had heavy dependencies on ASP.NET um, and IAS really is what led us down this path of where it looks like there's some duplication. I think this is one of the challenges we have as framework builders is laying, you know, is, is, is the pros and cons and, and really trying to figure out what's the right way to go based on everything that you know. And, and personally, I feel even though it did introduce some duplication, um, it kept similar concepts and it enabled a scenario that there was no way to enable without breaking those deep dependencies because when ASP.NET was built, it wasn't trying to support self-host. That was never a desire. So... That just explains where some of the overlap came in. Um, but I think the pros outweigh the cons, personally. So you guys are agreeing far too much for this show. <laughs> I, wanna, I want some smackdown here. Doesn't anybody have a... You well, know, I didn't realize this was a smackdown. <laughs> I think it's more than just an I, I, removing the IIS. Daryl can smack us down. Come Darryl on, Daryl. plenty of places. Come on, talk about how you really feel about model binding. Don't hold back, man. Oh, model binding. Well, okay, look, see, model binding, I believe, conceptually came over from the MVC side of things. And it works wonderfully if you're using an HTML form to post your data up. A lot of the MVC concepts were built around the idea of, well, my client is a web browser. And there were some, you know, shortcuts, optimizations taken. When you don't live in the web browser space like me, then a lot of that stuff just doesn't quite work the way you want it to work. Um, routing, for me, I, I struggle with routing, and I, I spend quite a bit of time on Stack Overflow and see a lot of other people. And the, the, the team know it, and they know there's stuff that, you know, we've talked about, the fact that maybe we can do something else. And there are other, you know, there's the community solutions, the attribute routing, which is becoming available on, uh, Web API, on for Web API also. And I've done my own uh, hierarchical type routing system that, that I've plugged in and works nicely for me. So you, you can only complain so much because you can easily replace the pieces. I, I think a few other things that we really, were really important when we built Web API is, you know, we saw a lot of people in the community talking about how hard it was to test WCF. Um, and so we had this goal of saying, okay, let's make Web API much easier to test. Let's not require you to have to spin up a server, which was the common way that people tested WCF services. Um, and there's still more work that we can do, but I think we've made a lot of progress embracing things like inversion of control containers. Uh, that's not surprising for folks coming from an MVC background. But WCF, anybody who knows who uses it, that it's possible to use an IOC, but it is extremely painful. And with Web API, we did a lot more first-class support for that. And another big thing we did, which I think has even impacted the traditional MVC side of the house, is coming with more of what we call code-based configuration. 
So one of the ideas, you know, like in, in, in WCF land, you pretty much had to be very comfortable working in configuration files, and those files can get freaking scary. Um, so with Web API, we, we, and we looked at a lot of what others were doing, like OpenRasta, and, you know, Nancy came up later, by the way. I, um, Web API was first, not Nancy, but Nancy came out quicker. <laughs> These boots made for walking. <laughs> but, but, you know, we saw this common pattern of, and Nancy's great, by the way, I'm not saying anything about Nancy, this code-based config that developers write code, and at the end of the day, they're very happy to have their configuration be part of their code rather than these kind of esoteric config files floating out there. And so we embraced that, and we embraced a lot of convention-based ideas as well. You know, for example, when you write an API controller, you just drop an action, and whatever the method name is will derive the HTTP method from that. That's real easy. If I put post, it's post. If I put patch, it's patch. I can put whatever I want, really, and, you know, it'll work. Um, so, those, so, we, so we definitely took, I think, a lot of input, not bo- both from the HTTP side and what people were trying to do over HTTP, as well as the engineering side and looking at what other frameworks were doing in this space. If I could ask you guys to just hold on one second, it's that happy time, Richard. Is it now? It is. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner is Barry J. Silver. Congratulations, Barry. Golf clap for you. Congratulations. Telerik's DevCraft Complete Collection has everything that they do in one box. It's a $2,000 value. We give one away every show. And if you don't know what we're talking about, Go to .nerocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and uh, answer a few questions. Join the fan club. We have thousands of listeners. You could win every show. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. And last year, Rob Corbett won a a, a custom-built PC, custom-built by Richard Campbell, and it's on his way to him now, isn't it? Indeed, and we made him a touch oriented development environment. Oh, and Gesture as well. I think you're sending him a Connect for Windows, too. Yes. And a Gesture Pack. Because why not? And why not? Yes. Everything he needs. So, um, we like to ask our guests, if you had, if somebody gave you a blank check for five grand, said you must spend this on technology, what would you get? Quickly, because we don't want to spend a lot of time doing this, but Henrik, what would you spend five grand on? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Um, oh, do I have to say something right now? Did you um, buy every homeless person in Denmark a, a McRib, maybe? <laughs> yes, there you That's go. That's not technology. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. All right, well, Daryl, what would you buy? I'd buy what I bought the other evening, a Surface Pro. Yeah. And one for the rest of the family. Yeah, that's one grand. Are you going to get five of them? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Five of them. everybody in the family can have one. Awesome. Oh, maybe a Windows Phone 8, too, because I only have a 7.5 at the moment. Ah, oh, very good. And Glenn? I pass. Jeez, uh, you guys are no fun. Hardware geeks. Really? You know, right. for five grand, you can pretty much get one of every tablet and phone. We priced it out on the road trip. Everything. Yep. All right, I'll take one of those. I'll do that. <laughs> the mobile pack. The mobile pack sounds good. All right, good. Probably what it would be, honestly, though, no, probably what it would be would like be a new super TV with an amazing stereo and probably a game system or two to throw in, like the uh, 
upcoming Xbox when it finally comes out and uh, PlayStation. Oh, I could do your audio system for you. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I'll set you up, man. You come to me. You know, I was thinking back to our earlier conversation, and I realized that everything Microsoft's done on the web has been very HTML-centric. They were always presuming going to a browser, and with Web API, we finally have something that's HTTP-centric. It doesn't matter what you're going to communicate to. It's just HTTP. Yes, no, that, that is absolutely true. Um, and, and that's one of the things where I th- that Glenn pointed back is that a lot of the abstractions in system web are very, uh, and ASP.NET are very oriented towards that, which is great because that's what's sort of a, a big, that's a big thing that you need to cover. But uh, more and more modern applications often use more re- uh, parts of, of HTTP. And, and you can say, well, HTML5 has really pushed the envelope in that direction also in the sense that you now get very rich access to uh, uh, through scripting to be able to really break your, make your pages and applications, single-page applications, uh, very interactive, very rich, and that's basically leveraging HTTP uh, in, a, in a way that we haven't seen before. Whereas before it was it was getting post and that was essentially it. Uh, you could order a pizza and you can sort of see the result and that was it. Uh, now you really have you can go all out building your applications around these models, and and that's where we see people that uh, they were we didn't have a, a an offering that really allowed people to leverage that. Surfing the web. Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. You know, I'm thinking back to your earlier points, Henrik, in the beginning of the web when there were lots of different protocols over the Internet, and then the web consumed everything, and now it's like we're going back to the way it was. Yeah, no, very very much so. And I think there's... One of the things I've been sort of lucky to work over the years has really been to try and push the web technology into new areas, um, and and so this is um, uh, something that hopefully enables this. Um, one of the reasons why you might not sort of see the whole lot of, of, of SmackDown here is I think th- that we have one of the things also we've done in parallel, which I think is very important, is that this whole process has really been developed as an open source community kind of thing, which allows people which we, uh, to provide feedback a lot earlier in the process uh, so it's not something that we just put together and then throw it over the wall and then people can either uh, love it or hate it, but it's a ma- matter of that we give them the opportunity to very early on bring in ideas to say, well, we should do it this way, we can fix this. And, and, and that model has really um, had a big impact on, as, as Glenn pointed out, the result. And I think we have uh, had a, a sort of a better way of, of uh, addressing scenarios as, as we made progress in that regard. Yeah, it truly is an evolutionary process when you think about that. Even going backwards is part of it. You know, even taking from a, you know, from a protocol that doesn't work, ripping it apart, getting down to a, a, a lower level and building it back up again, it's all evolutionary. Yeah, very much so. 
the one criticism I would make of moving away from using HTML as being the primary media type to this agnostic way. Uh, Web API does kind of encourage people down this route of um, serializing types back across the wire, the default formatters in the box. They kind of, well, we can serialize it as JSON, application slash JSON, or we can serialize it as application slash XML, which is not, not necessarily the most ideal way of conveying information across the web in an evolvable way. It's fine if you control both ends of the wire, mm-hmm. but having being able to communicate media types across the wire that actually have some meaning, like a vCard or, or Atom Pub or activity streams, I think that, for me, is a better way of using it. And it's not a, as publicly visible as the way to use it. You certainly can use it that way, it just doesn't seem that's kind of the prescribed way out of the box. No, that's a good point. Uh, um, I think we will, I hope over time that we will see uh, there will be more and more formatters uh, supporting some of those formats because they will then help uh, building up some applications. Um, it might also well be that when you start building some of these higher-level applications that, that use these formats that you will sort of need to pull in other kind of application semantics also. Um, we kind of have a little bit of that with uh, uh, the OData add-on that we just added. Uh, this, it's uh, out there in preview and it's going to shift fairly soon where there's a new formatter that now allows you to do OData. Yeah. Um, and you can do queries and so there's this bunch of application stuff that comes along with it. And you can imagine doing that for a variety of different formats. Hey, Daryl, I hate to bait you, but it's been suggested that I ask the question, what's the difference between Web API and, quote, true REST? Well, I see that's really easy to do because Web API basically doesn't try and do REST. It tries and does HTTP. And if you're doing REST over HTTP, then there's nothing in Web API that stands in your way. I mean, you, you have a really nice access to all the headers with the strongly typed model. You have this notion, this generic concept of HTTP content, which is they're very easy to derive new content types from. Uh, I mean, the service that I produce for my own business application, I've built a whole bunch of different media types that all have hyper or hypermedia enabled. And th- there's, there's absolutely nothing in Web API that gets in my way. Uh, and, that was a, and that was a deliberate goal. I think, you know, like when we talked about early on saying that we would be opinionated about HTTP and not opinionated about REST, we, we, did, we were very cognizant, um, you know, and Henrik already knew a lot of this stuff, and I was learning, and the team was learning, and we had the help of the advisors of making sure that we were enabling, um, that we were not blocking those things that were really important to folks, but that we were not necessarily being opinionated about those things being there in the box. Web API could do more to enable yeah. people to do REST. There's definitely, and we've known this for a long time, there could be some concept, uh, strongly typed links, uh, being able to deal with URI templates and being able to, uh, having access to more headers, because there's new headers coming out all the time, the prefer header. There's, there's so much new work being done on HTTP, extending it, uh, new um, status codes coming out all of the time. Uh, to handle scenarios that people are, are running into. It's, you know, it, it's a 10-year-old protocol, but it's, it's evolving still very quickly. 
Well, I'm wondering if this could web API could end up being something broader than this, that it could ultimately be an open source standard for communicating with HTTP across lots of different platforms. You mean REST? <laughs> or what? Isn't that what like that what? is? Because <laughs> HTTP is the standard. HTTP right. is the standard. REST is... Oh, you're making a joke. I get it. <laughs> Actually, I'm not. I'm saying is this is an API that a lot of people could implement. Well, REST itself is just a set of constraints. You know, there's a lot of misnomers about REST. I mean, REST is just a set of constraints. It's a way to use HTTP. I think there's libraries that, one, that people could build that help you go down a RESTful path. Um, and, you know, if you look at OpenRasta, for example, it's much more opinionated about leading you down a RESTful direction. Um, but it's not a standard per se. I think that's what people struggle with. They want to read the REST spec. And there is I, none. I don't, I don't like monolithic frameworks. I'd rather more of the JavaScript model of small focused frameworks that do little things and you glue them all together. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think Web API should keep growing into this ginormous thing that does everything for everybody. No, I agree, but it could offer add-ons for people that want them. Yeah. But yes, and that would fit what you just said, that boltable, that boltable model. Well, my point I was saying to Richard is there is no HTTP spec. Uh, sorry, take that back. Henrik's going to shoot me. There is no, strike that, there is no REST spec. Just get over it. There's no REST spec. There are specs that could come around of, you know, maybe standardized approaches to building a RESTful system. I guess that's possible, and people keep trying to do it. But, but at the end of the day, it is an architectural style, and it's not a technology. All I know for sure about REST is that we're all doing it wrong. <laughs> that's, you know, even those that think they're doing it right. <laughs> There's, there's probably truth there. I mean, I think the problem, and this is a bigger conversation, is people get hung up on REST. Like, oh, REST yes. is a set of guidelines, a set of constraints on how to build systems to get some benefit, but it's not like, uh, you know, you pass the test because you're RESTful. But that is the way that people think about it. I think where the REST community gets, you know, has gotten a lot of heat, or, or no, has gotten pretty heated, is when people distort the meaning of REST and make it into something that's like a spec or, you know, or a URI. You know, I've got my RESTful URIs. Like, right. to most people that understand what REST is about, they're like, what, the, what does that mean? It means nothing, but yet tons of people use it and they document it. So I think there's a, you know, that, that's where there's a discord. And that's why a lot of people in the REST community have just stopped using the word now. They've moved on. They're using hypermedia now. <laughs> hmm. Hypermedia systems. That's that's the that's the new term that people use. So Henrik, when you, I mean, isn't that what HTTP is? Um, isn't it REST? Yes, it is. Um, but the the thing that very quickly became clear uh, to everybody involved is that um, uh, nobody really controls uh, HTTP or, or, or the web and how it's being used in in that sense, in, in that people use it in all kind of creative ways and some um, are extremely interesting in, in some ways. Others are not quite as interesting. But um, at the end of the day, I think you, uh, this really is no time sort of to, to get on the high horse and, and tell people, saying, well, there's only one way to, 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 uh, to rock, so to speak. Yeah. Um, 
But in sense, what what we are saying is that well, here's a way for you to to leverage some of the things that you would like to do, and uh, we build it based on some models that says well, um, hopefully it works. If you just want to do something lightweight, it gives you that ability. If you want to build something more complicated, it gives you that ability. But not to get in your way, keep the concept count down, allow you to sort of have a a play-as-you-go kind of model to it, and then let the rest of it just play out. Because at the end of the day, um, it, that's where it goes back to that we're not particularly opinionated um, in the sense that you can do it whichever, sort of whichever way you want to do. We're not going to come and tell you saying that that, that is just a horrible way of doing it. And, and um, um, people often figure that out themselves. Or they're happy with it, and that's fine, too. <laughs> Silence. Yeah. Uh, Do we want to go in another direction? Well, I mean, I I think that, you know, talking about what Daryl said, there are things that we can do more of, um, and we are looking at that, and those things will most likely, a lot of those things will be add-ons, but but there are certainly core things we could do. For example, um, you know, one of the things we had in, in WCF Web API, which I think is coming back, was this test client, and the test client is really awesome. People love it because it basically means like I don't have to have Fiddler installed on my machine if I'm developing, even though Fiddler is awesome. But the fact that I can just walk up to a machine that has Web API and go in the browser against that API and I get like an interactive experience for uh, making requests against that API. So that would be one thing that would be great to get back in the box. And another thing is as people build it right now, actually. What was that? There's a sample for doing it right now. Uh, Yeah, there's a sample. But, but it would be cool if it was, you know, there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and another feedback we had when we did that test client was people were saying, hey, if I'm building a hypermedia system, then all I'm really doing is just navigating links. Like, it's just like navigating a web page. Links mm-hmm. come back, and I can jump around those links. And it would be really cool if the test client actually supported that ability for me to say, hey, if I'm, if I'm building something that has links, I can literally just see those links in the UI and click those links and navigate to the next place in the system. And that's a great learning tool for actually working with um, a hypermedia API because hypermedia APIs are a big shift because you go from this world of statically defined URLs that clients are responsible to building up to really just following your nose, as they say, on the links that the server is passing you back. And it, it changes a lot of the development workflow as well. Right. I just think so, Fiddler should be a required download for anybody installing Web API. I agree. But it doesn't support links either. We need to so add a Fiddler extension. You can build okay. an extension that easy for Fiddler. Go for it, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, Fiddler should be required equipment, and not just for Web API. If you're communicating over a network at all, it tells you a lot. So one thing that would be really interesting is to talk about how Web API has influenced the future of the web stack. Henrik, do you want to touch on where yeah, things are absolutely. going? Yeah, no, sure. So one of the things we're looking at is um, uh, bringing some of those pluggability, modularity, uh, only take the things that you need uh, and be able to build applications around that um, to the broader web stack uh, as a whole. And how we, and also one aspect of that is that if you um, don't sort of sit on top of the kitchen sink, there might be uh, performance benefits that you can get that way. There's also a way that you can focus uh, the thing that you want to do just on 
uh, and get those done and not to have a huge amount of other kind of stuff around that just sort of sits there. Um, and so we are looking at, at different ways for how to uh, uh, build models out that are more pluggable, more modular, and more uh, that work well together. Uh, we actually have a little uh, code project right now. It's called Katana, uh, which is available on CodeFlex, uh, where we play around and, and start uh, looking at, well, could we take this notion of a self-host model further uh, building it up with a way for that allow you to plug in not just sort of web API, but also maybe signal and maybe some other kind of things that can sit side by side um, and still leveraging each other and then build applications that way. And uh, it's a different model than the, the, the kitchen sink approach, um, but uh, we don't know exactly how it's going to work out yet, but it's, it's sort of a prototype project where we're looking at, at uh, how to do that, how to bring those models to the web stack and build a more, uh, hopefully, modern and more lightweight web stack that way. That way. So if you're interested in doing that, that um, uh, in looking at what we have, then, then go check it out. And uh, it's all open source, and it's all sort of available for download, but it's very early on. And what's it called? Katana. I believe that it's a sword kind of thing. You heard it. You heard it, folks. Katana. It's pretty awesome. Yes. And I have a hypermediaapi.com website that's running on Katana and Web API in a Azure VM. Wow. It's just a test site. I use Bootstrap, uh, Twitter Bootstrap, the UI, and just as a proof that you can actually build a simple website just purely using Web API. So I think that's really exciting to see how, you know, like the work we were doing in Web API is really having a greater influence now on, you know, the future of the entire web stack. Um, and, and great to see that the web stack itself is really evolving and not standing still. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, guys, this has been an amazing hour. Uh, thank you so much. I, I wish you could have uh, slung a little more mud at each other, but, you know, hey, it's good to see that great minds get along. <laughs> Even if our ratings suffer, you should have prompt, you should prepped us more. You know, like said, you guys need to you need to throw more mud at each other ahead of time, and then we could have you know we could have worked that out. Last words. And is there a book in the works, Glenn? We do. That's a great point, Daryl. You want to talk about our book? Sure. Uh, myself, Glenn, uh, Pablo, and Pedro are building uh, writing a book for O'Reilly. Howard. Don't forget Howard and Howard. Jeez. Yeah. Um, we'll never Howard forgive you for that. Howard Durking. It's, it's available in O'Reilly's early access. You can watch us floundering as we try and write this. Uh, the book is about <laughs> evolving systems and using Web API to build evolvable systems. And it is an evolving book as well. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very um, to the point. So you'll find all sorts of things in there, some in-depth dives into various pieces of technology in the later chapters, and we're building, we're actually building an application that we will evolve, talking about selecting different media types, looking at the common ones, the hypermedia types like Collection Plus JSON and HAL, and uh, we'll hopefully try and address a lot of the questions that uh, we hear commonly, uh, where people go, well, how do you actually really do this kind of RESTful system? Hmm. Excellent. So it's fun. Henrik, what's next for you? Well, I've been spending a lot of time on um, uh, Windows Azure Mobile Services recently. 
which is about building um, web APIs as part of applications sitting in Azure, uh, and that actually has been great fun. It, it leverages some of the same methodologies, and, and plus I've also been spending time on um, on this Katana uh, project at the moment, plus, of course, looking after web API. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you again. It's been a great thank time. Thank you. Thank you so much. You bet, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band.